Music to Code By is taking the developer world by storm. Now there are six extra tracks available online in addition to the original three. That's nine Pomodoros of pure productivity just waiting for you. Check them out at mtcb.pwop.com. Dotnet Rocks, episode 1235, with guest Einer Hust. Recorded Friday, December 11th, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's time for Dotnet Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. And uh, we're back in the studio after a couple of weeks on the road and yes, other stuff. And you went to you went to Paris after uh, after I- Israel, didn't you? Well, I had the wife with me, right? So yeah. she still wanted to go to Paris. Actually, we did a lot a lot of Christmas shopping in Paris, which sounds way more pretentious than it actually is. Did you shop at like museum stores? Um, there, there. Actually, we found this. You know how the department store is kind of dead in North America? Like yeah. nobody goes to a Sears or anything anymore. Right. Well, there's a department store in Paris called Lafayette. And it is, I have to say, awesome. And I'm not a guy who likes shopping, hmm. but we, this, A, it spread across three blocks. It was Titanic. Oh, they, um, their, their food area, we ended up having lunch there twice because it was so good. Wow. Like just, it's just, yeah, you know, it was really an interesting experience. And I got to tell you, that whole reputation of the French being unfriendly and so forth, that is not no, the experience bull. we had. It's complete bullcrap. Yeah, it was – we had – there was a few more standoffish people, maybe weaker English because our French is hopeless even being Canadian. Mm. I did – you know, we 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 have the the hello, goodbye, thank you, you know, all that sort of stuff. But mm. – and, and we can read a menu. Mm-hmm. But um, – no, they were super warm and super fun. And God, it was just great. I highly recommend it. Spend did, some time. Did you have a bottle of Chateau Neuf de Pape? <laughs> Why, actually, we did. <laughs> and I also got my wife hooked on Armagnac. So we came home wow. with a 30-year-old bottle of Armagnac. And Armagnac is a kissing cousin to cognac. Mm. But they're a tenth of the price. A 30-year-old bottle of cognac today is probably five or $600. Mm. And it was 50 euros for Armagnac. Wow. So, Yeah. Bargain. Quite nice. I well, totally agree. That's great. Um, we have a lot to catch up on. We'll uh, roll the music, and I've got something for you, sir. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? You ever heard of Mumble? I have. Tell well, me about it. Well, um, actually, I'm going to use a, a new URL system. It's I, 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 I registered pwop.me. Oh. And because uh, it's a short name, and then I just made URL uh, records in it. So if you go to mumble.pwop.me, M-E, you'll see uh, Mumble. And this is an open source, low latency, high quality voice chat system that's mostly for gamers, but uh, you can use it in any kind of software. Oh, yeah, just get the dev's hands on it and who knows what'll happen with it. Yeah, and it's cool because there isn't a whole lot of open source audio stuff, or at least there hasn't been until the last five or six years. 
So yeah, I, for a long time, a lot of the underlying drivers and stuff were commercial. They were expensive. Right. And yeah. one off in particular to the hardware. So now we've right. got some really nice abstractions out there. Yep. So that's what I got. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1045, the one we did with Jim Holmes. We talked about battling technical debt while keeping the lights on, which I thought was particularly relevant. Seems today's conversation. Yeah. And actually, uh, this is an awesome message. A little bit long, but Alan has a lot to say. This is Alan McBee who says, I love the advice given on this show and constantly find myself nodding in agreement and recommendations, the observations and general attitudes. Let's face it, dogmatic is bad. Yep. But I have this nagging concern that we are in the echo chamber. I know what you mean. Hello. It seems seems that most speakers, most of the listeners, and probably most of the hosts of the show are developers, or at least think of themselves as having access to developer mindset. Mm. We've all had to try to explain to business people why it just makes sense to spend time cleaning up the code. What we haven't done much of is trying to take off the developer hat and putting on the manager hat. Mm -hmm. In my experience in the enterprise IT world, as in playing the side of the programmer playground that is not dominated by the post-agile, quote, programmers. 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 Many enterprise IT managers are not terribly attentive to finding more efficient ways of doing things so as to reduce support costs or, quote, increase team velocity. What they are attentive to is meeting their own performance goals. This often includes things like deliver the consolidated integration update 6.5 project by the end of first quarter and ensure smooth rollout of the ancient vendor app add-in for Internet Explorer 8 to all users. Mm. To these managers, the reduction of technical debt sounds like a great idea, a great idea to add lots of risks of failing to meet their semi-annual performance goals. And I know this is meant to sound sarcastic because it is sarcastic, even if it doesn't sound that way in my head. (laughs) I have difficulty imagining a director approving a manager's goal of having his team spend 20% of their time cleaning up code they feel hinders the ability to meet company goals in a way that nobody can really tell, even though they've been mostly meeting the company's goals up to now just fine. Mm. And yes, that was sarcastic too. Yeah. Unfortunately, those managers are also rather unlikely to be avid listeners to the show. See, there's the problem right there. That's a shame for a couple of reasons. Obviously, they are missing out on great speakers, geek outs, and hilarious jokes from Carl when it's that happy time again in the show. Yep. <laughs> hilarious. Also sarcastic. There's now three sentences where he explains why that should win him a mug, which, by the way, I'm reading your comment, Alan. So, yeah, you get the mug, but okay. <laughs> But it's mostly a shame because they and their bosses are the ones who most need to understand that reducing technical debt is a big picture win. I like that term. Yeah. And yet they are not listening to the show, so they will never hear it. They're barely listening to us developers, especially since what we're saying means that they might not reach their performance goals in this review period. I reminded of a caller on a talk radio show. She complained that she wasn't meeting any men, even though she thought she was doing all the right things. The host asked her what her routine was. The caller replied that she worked out in an all-women's gym. Then she went to the office where colleagues were mostly women, and then she went home. And the host gently suggested that she at least ought to try to go where the men are at (laughs) instead of expecting them to seek her out. I understand that the point of the show was to help developers make the business case to managers, and I wholeheartedly agree with every point and suggestion. Yet we developers are not renowned for our command of the soft skills, such as speaking persuasively to a recalcitrant audience. Recalcitrant. Good word. Nice word. Those developers have mastered those skills, probably don't need much guidance. 
I suspect that the winning approach will be one that approaches the problem from the mindset of the performance goal-oriented manager and one that is delivered into the environments where these types of managers congregate, leadership retreats and management workshops and so forth. If we can persuade some of these groups to invite some of those persuasive developers, then you might actually see some more meat on this bone. What do you think? I think this guy needs his own show. (laughs) (laughs) I really came across with two thoughts here. One was... Uh, maybe we need to make a show that everyone can play for their managers. It's yeah. shorter that, that really addresses technical debt. I think that's an interesting idea. Maybe this is that show we're going to do with Enar. Um, and also that, uh, this is something that DevOps speaks to strongly. That the whole, one of the aspects of instrumentation that you get on the operations side comes back to showing visibly the cost of technical debt. And so you don't have to be persuasive. You can let the numbers do the persuading for you. There's a reason for management not wanting to spend resources on technical debt. They don't see a cost to it. So if we make the cost visible, suddenly that's not an expense. It's got a return on investment. Anyway, Alan, thank you so much for your comment. The .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social media. We post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we read your comment on the show. We'll send you a mug. And that brings us to our special guest today. Einar W. Hust is an ivory tower expat and computer programmer working for Computus, a Norwegian consultancy delivering software solutions for knowledge workers. Short and sweet. That's the way we like it, Einar. Um, we haven't talked to you since show 920, which we talked to you and Bjorn and Jonas in, uh, I think it was in London about Bristol. React- oh, Bristol. That's right. Somewhere in England about their controlling drones with reactive extensions 2013 yeah that's right yeah that was a lot of fun are you guys still doing that stuff uh we'll do it we're doing stuff anyway uh yeah. sometimes <laughs> it's uh Good sometimes answer. it's drones sometimes it's uh reactive extensions. sometimes it's entirely different things but yeah we definitely still still hang out still try uh to do uh, crazy stuff yeah. i still point people to that show is a great um, way to show the value of reactive extensions. It just makes so much sense. Oh, that's cool. That yeah, was a good show. So, technical debt. What did you think of? First of all, what did you think of the uh, the comment that Richard read? Uh, I think it was very interesting, uh, and uh, I think there was a lot of uh, valid points uh, being raised. Uh, in particular, I think uh, the part about uh, communication uh, being sort of the the main problem when when talking about technical debt. Uh, I think that was spot on. Yeah, it sure is. And it, it sounds like he was just sort of reiterating what we've already been talking about and what Jim was talking about on that show. And right. it's just a matter of, it seems to me, it's just a matter of bringing people's consciousness to it, sort of pointing their brains to it and say, hey, we really have to think about this. Even, you know, I know you want to get going and start writing code and, and all of this stuff, sure. but we really have to think about this at the same time. Yep. Uh, the, the thing that I, I think about, though, is uh, sort of, Trying to dig a little bit deeper about what what technical debt really is and what we mean when we say technical debt, because uh, uh, well, it sounds like it's it's a purely technical matter, but I don't think it is. So um, um, the main thing I think is that uh, technical debt is usually a second order effect more more than just sort of like a lack of technical skills. And I think it's more like you have uh, not really maybe you had the time to uh, work out what you need to do 
and then you sort of you have to do it anyway and then you have uh, more like a modeling that more like an understanding of the problem domain that that you need to handle as well yeah i never felt like people create technical debt because of a lack of skill i think it's usually a lack of time the need yes. to make deadlines uh, means right. you you cut corners quite knowledgeably. I mean, you, you've, I've even seen it in comments. I did this ugly thing because the deadline was tomorrow. You know, yes. folks know when they're cutting corners. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, I think they they do know that they're uh, cutting corners, uh, but maybe the problem is it, it's hard to uh, come back to the time when you sort of you had the real problem in your head. So it's. Well, mm. We say we want to uh, re refactor the code and pay back on the technical debt, but it's not necessarily the case that we know just how much debt we incurred, even though we we know that we incurred some debt, that we uh, hasted through something that we should have uh, thought uh, better through. Uh, so it's, it's hard to, uh, I think, uh, put a real number on how much debt uh, you sort of incurred by meeting this deadline this one time. Yeah, and I think this is something that Alan was referring to there too. It's like you have to be able to present. You're you're going to consume developer cycles, and those cost money, and they're sure. and you're going to work on stuff that technically isn't a feature per se. You're not going to add new code. You're going to go back and fix old code. How do you show yep. the value, and and correspondingly, how do you show the cost of not doing it? Yes, absolutely. And so often the the symptom you get is that uh, slowly, slowly uh, your velocity sort of deteriorates over time because it's uh, complexity grows over time and then it becomes harder and harder to sort of know how to, to add or, or fix even small things. Right. Uh, so, and how, how do you really measure that and show that uh, our velocity is going down over time? That's, that's kind of a hard problem. I think. And there's lots of other reasons why velocity might go down too. It's like, Hey, the, maybe the team needs more training. Like how do you, you've got to sort of equate this. This is, this is a manifestation of technical debt that is getting harder and harder to build new features. I mean, you would yes. think as de as a development team matures, they get faster, not slower. Yep, that's right. But, uh, but some, somehow, strangely, they, they seem not to. And I think the problem is that uh, if you're always in a rush and if you're always trying to sort of meet a new deadline, then uh, sort of the most rational thing to do is to, to make a local optimization, not a global one, right? Mm. So uh, you would try to sort of make the... The, the least possible change that you can do through the code so that you sort of uh, meet the the task that you were assigned, right? And if you do that, uh, you don't really redesign your software at all. You just sort of create epicycles on on the model that you already have. And that's uh, that's something that scales rather poorly, I think. So you get epicycles on epicycles on epicycles. And you can mm -hmm. see that uh, we tend to call it spaghetti code. But it's, I, I think it's really sort of code that's been patched on and patched on and patched on to sort of force it to do slightly different things that it, than it did before because it, it made sense and it was rational at that time to, to make the smallest possible change. We were recently doing a show where we had a guest who really loved um, brownfield projects. In fact, loved cleaning up and debugging old code and uh, refactoring and, you know, would rather dive into uh, a, a technical debt project, for lack of better words, than start a greenfield application. And it just occurred to me that those guys and those women are very few and far between, it seems. is I mean, that's, that's a solution, isn't it? You just find somebody who's ready to go, who, who really likes to do that. 
yeah but i think you need to clone those people because i think they're few and and far far between but it's it's great when you have them uh but i think uh at least for me to do that um i have i have uh, sort of found myself in that situation uh quite Mm. a few times like uh as a consultant uh coming into big legacy systems uh that that are mission critical for the business and they need to continue working yet they still want to fix quality problems um and i always have to start with the domain and and like really trying to uh get to the bottom to what uh what are you really trying to accomplish here more than uh, at least my brain sort of explodes uh, a lot uh, uh before i can sort of take in all the boolean flag and branches that have sort of accumulated over 10 years of business so uh, i think i need to start at the modeling side when i uh, try to to do that kind of cleanup because it's it's just too much for me at least so when you're talking about improving communication to reduce technical debt do you start with any kind of procedures or 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 even exercises or things daily things that we should be doing together um oh you know what's your what's your plan of attack uh yeah so um i think uh, the most important thing is to uh, perhaps uh try to uh, open up lines of communication that have been dormant uh you need to uh um, make sure that in the case that uh, there is little communication between the domain experts or the functional people or the user interface people and the developers uh sort of um then you need to make sure that they they speak regularly and and then there is this uh there's the book by Eric Evans on domain-driven design that has a lot of interesting thoughts, I think at least, uh, on how you sort of uh, develop a, a shared language between all the stakeholders working on the project so that you uh, reduce the, the amount of uh, sort of tribal speak uh, yeah. that the different uh, categories or roles in your project will have. So developers will talk developer language, uh, testers will te- talk test language, uh, domain uh, people will talk domain language but but it's very important i think that they all share the same understanding of things so that you you don't get this uh, this uh these tribes that uh, have to sort of um, translate every time they talk together well it sounds sounds like you know just be awesome just just do it right you know uh how how is that done <laughs> you really need to work through uh, uh business cases together like it's it's not enough to have like a short chat or to have someone write up a specification and then the developer sort of goes off to the dark room to to sort of make it happen i think it's very important that you work out the details and you have all the questions uh answered uh not by a single group of people but sort of seen from all perspectives i've had the experience many times where um uh, you know, you go to the customer the first day and they sort of give you a one hour overview and you're sort of yep. left to glean all of the knowledge of their vast experience yep. in their domain in right. one hour. And invariably, yes. you end up misunderstanding something because they Absolutely. think you've got it and you think you've got it. And yep. so it, it, do we call a third party in to sort of make sure we've got it and you know if hey if you can explain it to me and you can explain it to me and i understand it from both of your perspectives maybe that's you know now we're i'm satisfied yeah uh, i think the the hard part is that you need uh, at, at least in in my perspective you need that 
sort of uh, you need to iterate over that uh, all the time during uh, basically during the lifetime of the application. Right? Yeah. So, Every time you need a new feature, you need to have discussions. Uh, and I don't think they have to be that long. Uh, so it doesn't have to be like a big process thing, but you need to be able to sort of pull on the right people, uh, have a whiteboard, make some drawings, uh, ask the questions, did I understand this correctly? Why do you use this term um, that I've never heard before when you describe this particular use case? Is that something that we should have in our code, in our model? So pulling on the knowledge of your domain experts very easily with very little cost. Uh, I think that's that's very important. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. Our dev-centric friends at Stackify have been awarded PC Magazine's Editor's Choice for Application Performance Management, stating the depth of application information provided by Stackify totally outshined the other products in this category. Because Stackify so successfully integrates errors, logs, and metrics into a core APM Plus tool, it's a must-have for .NET developers, which is why PC Magazine's Paul Farrell calls it one of the best infrastructure management services of 2015. Try Stackify now for free, and they'll ship you their coveted Developers Against Humanity card game. Just activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to build better apps faster and get your free game. This is something that was in Eric Evans's book long ago. I mean, that book's been around since the early 2000s. Yeah, about this idea of building up a good glossary. And I'm yes. with you that yeah. you need to validate that against multiple people. Like as soon as you yes. get two or three domain experts for a given domain in a room or with yep. a whiteboard and you start using these glossary terms, you find yes. out they all disagree yep. yes. on what that term Absolutely. actually means. And how can they communicate Absolutely. it to you if they can't agree among themselves? When I think it's one of the opportunities we have as developers, because, you know, it's like you come in dumb. It's like, I, I, I'm yep. new here. What is this? And then you find out yep. nobody really can agree on what that is. Yeah. So you also get to you get to point at white elephants that way, right? It's like this dumb thing you people have been doing for a long time has always been here. I'm new here and I don't know. You guys all know this is dumb, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, the good thing is that uh, – programmers can uh, use their sort of uh, attention and awareness to to spot ambiguity right because we cannot really accept ambiguity when when trying to automate something in software so we can perhaps be good at detecting these small glitches in meaning uh when you talk to different people on the project Right. And, and it's, let's, let's make sure we're not thinking anybody's dumb or badly intentioned or anything here. It's like, there's often a lack of clarity around these things that you have to oh, get absolutely. over as a developer because you're sure. going to manifest it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, uh, uh, normal people tend to speak in natural language, right? And then there's a lot of inherent uh, ambiguity there. So it's, it's obvious that it's going to be that way. At least that's true for English. I don't know if it's true for Swedish. It's certainly not true for German. The Germans are always quick to tell me their language is very clear. They're, it's very clear, but it's also very verbose, I think. <laughs> <laughs> clear and wordy. That's right. But, you know, I, I, my, my grandmother told me the story of her grandfather learning English and finding out he was supposed to cut some trees down, and then he was supposed to cut them up. <laughs> I'll let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> and for a German, that was very distressing. <laughs> All right, you know, 
The other danger when you talk, when you're going to go talk to the mortals about technical debt is sure. there's this implication that you did something wrong. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I think, I think that's a little bit weird. Uh, technical debt is, is a very useful term. Uh, I understand it was invented by Ward Cunningham. Uh, and it's and everything Ward useful. does is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's awesome in the sense that he gave, uh, gave us this new word that stakeholders sort of at least uh, uh, understand. So it, it, they can right. sort of imagine that, yeah, I can see that you had to do, uh, cut some corners. I do remember the talk we had uh, when you said that, okay, this is not going to be optimal. Uh, so we have at least uh, terminology to sort of to refer to that. And that's, that's mm -hmm. awesome. So uh, it's, it's very important to have have like words that we can use to describe this invisible thing uh, to to other people. Do you buy into this idea that we could instrument technical debt that you could show the cost of it? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I, th I think I think okay. I mean, that's very 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 fair. It's, it's, it's a conversation I'm having all the time these days in the DevOps circles about this coding shortcut we've taken is impacting operations because they're restart have to restart the server on a regular basis. I have to do this cleanup, that kind of thing. Right. I, um, perhaps maybe for some things uh, you can measure it, but I think for the sort of like larger kinds uh, of things that uh, at least I think about, uh, about the modeling that, that comes from insufficient communication, I think that's mm -hmm. very hard to measure because it's, I mean, the software kind of does what it's supposed to do. It just maybe does it in a very cumbersome way. And it's mostly uh, an issue for the programmers that have to work with that code and that complexity afterwards. So it's, uh, you know, the, when they distinguish between accidental and uh, essential complexity in the software, uh, right. I think it's very hard to measure the, the amount of accidental uh, complexity that you have accumulated over time. Mm -hmm. And it's even harder to, to say how many dollars that uh, extra complexity costs you. I think that's very hard. But it's a great thought, this distinction between accidental and intentional complexity. Accidental yes. complexity typically comes from a lack of understanding of the system. You, you, you know, yes. it's halfway through the project when you finally really understand what the project's supposed to do, yes. and you're like, "Oh, I wish I could start over now." Yes, exactly. Uh, and uh, I think that's uh, what Eric Evans is hinting at when he says uh, tackling complexity in the heart of software. So he he wants to sort of uh, tackle the essential complexity that you have in the business domain that that needs to be there for the software to do the right thing, but then because we need to manifest uh, those processes in software, we also incur this accidental complexity uh, in larger or smaller degrees. So there's lots of systems for trying to reduce this kind of stuff, you know, in even within the agile or under the agile umbrella, yes. you know, um, I, I, I hate to, you know, talk about tools as solving the problem and methodologies, but it mm -hmm. does seem like that's what we're talking about. We're talking about communication and anything that we can do to improve communication and make things clearer up front seems yes. like they help a lot. I mean, what's in your tool chest? Uh, well, you mean tools for communication or? I don't mean, uh, I don't necessarily mean software tools. I mean, you know, no. how, what, how, how do you, when you go in and, and uh, to a project, what, what are the, some of the, what's your checklist of things that, that you need to do? Well, one thing is that, uh, I mean, uh, I think the Eric Evans book is, is basically a toolbox, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what I will be looking for is, uh, 
is this uh, list of concepts, uh, descriptions that sort of explain what domain terms mean and yeah. how they relate to e each other. So it's it's very useful just to have a list of words and a short description, and then perhaps use uh, links to link them to other uh, descriptions as well. That that helps mm -hmm. a lot, uh, and it demonstrates that uh, communication or discussions have have been made, and it's something you can point at to say. Uh, well, based on the conversation that we're having now, uh, I don't think this is true anymore for our application. So maybe we should revise this description. Mm -hmm. And what does that have to do? Uh, or what are the impacts on the software? We, do we need to make uh, changes in the software as well to reflect our new understanding of the, uh, this domain concept? So uh, I think that's that's a, a, a big sign. And I think it's also very useful uh, for software that lives uh, for a long time because you will have new developers coming on board, new team members, mm -hmm. right? And they, they need to uh, learn this domain very quickly um, in order to be useful at all. Uh, and I think that's that's sort of their best shot at, at gaining that knowledge quickly. It's an interesting idea. I mean, it's one thing to capture the information in the first place from the domain experts to try and yep. understand it as an individual developer, presumably as a lead developer. Now, as mm -hmm. a lead developer... How do I communicate that to other developers that is more effective than talking to the domain experts rather than less? You know, the, the whole I whisper in your ear, you whisper in the next ear, by the end, it's completely mangled. Yes. You know, you would think now that I've got it as the lead developer and I could think about it clearly, I mm -hmm. should be able to explain it in a language that other devs understand. What do you think about making videos? You know, video is a, one of these sort of ubiquitous tools that is just becoming easier and easier to do. And to have somebody sit down and, um, you know, put their thoughts in a video, whether it's a, a concept or just a talking head or both, uh, is something that, you know, future devs and other people can look back on as a sort of a source of truth. I think it could be interesting to, I mean, uh, it's very easy to, to make a video. So you, you could, uh, conceivably record an interesting discussion that you're going to have also mm. and it's i mean it's very cheap to toss it away if it's it's not that uh, useful exactly but if it, it turns out to be useful uh you can keep that uh, conversation around in the form of video sure sure yeah That's, yeah might even be worth uh having somebody on the team just sort of be in charge of archiving that stuff and curating it well hey richard yeah, yeah buddy guess what time it is I must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to completely pay off all my technical debt by calling Bob the IT loan shark. <laughs> bad, bad idea. <laughs> well, what's his interest rate? <laughs> oh, his interest rate is he rewrites everything in Ruby. We're talking about Bob here, dude. <laughs> Slick Bob. Big bad Bob. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, it's time to give away a D experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next generation touch enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best, without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Daniel Sermon from Fort Collins, Colorado. Ah, congratulations, Daniel. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah. And Daniel just won the D-Experience subscription from Developer Express. That's a big pile of awesome from them. 
And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and uh, every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, which we just did mm-hmm, last week, last week we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. We also like to ask our guests, Einar, if you had $5,000 US to spend on technology today, sir, what would you buy? Oh, $5,000, that's a lot of money. Um, so it's so much money that I, I don't think I'd like anything useful. I'd, I'd like something not that frivolous. useful. Uh, a trip so, to Disney World? <laughs> we like frivolous. <laughs> so I, I'm thinking Have you more, met us? Uh, We're pretty frivolous. <laughs> I was seeing this video uh, with the... Uh, CEO of Intel, and uh-huh. apparently they made this uh, curious chip um, that allows you to control an army of robot spiders using hand gestures. <laughs> and I don't, I don't really know if it's five thousand dollars or it's more or it's less. Uh, but uh, I thought I'd look kind of cool. So uh, an army oh, of robot yes, spiders. Oh yes, I saw this. I Actually, that's, it's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's oh. kind of terrifying, but that's yeah. Controlling a swarm of robot spiders with gestures. No, that's not terrifying at all. <laughs> Remember the movie Ben? Michael Jackson. That's it. Well, he did the lead. It was anyway. a terrible movie. It was a terrible movie, but, you know, that was rats instead of spiders. Yeah. Imagine if you do it with spiders. Big spiders. All right. Yeah, that's totally cool. You know, I, I like that. Yep. You need to do more gesture-controlled mob, you know, mechanisms. Now, you know, the flying drone thing would be also terrifying, too. If you had enough of them, yeah. And then they would crash into each other. I kind of like this as a Halloween prank, you know? <laughs> the kids come to the door and then they spy- robot spiders crawl over them. Yep. Or come at them. <laughs> come at them. Love it. I think if you could have a swarm of quadcopters, like 20, hovering around you, not colliding, but your gestures, they move like almost like a, like a again, like a swarm or a school. Yeah, it'd be very freaky. Noisy, too. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds like reactive extension work right there. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Sounds like someone's going to call the cops on you. That's what it sounds like. Or Ah. or just shoot them down. All right, we've talked about a couple of kinds of technical debt. I'm wondering if there's more, right? Like, there's there's this idea of uh, technical debt incurred because of a lack of understanding of the domain. Yes. Yes. there's a technical debt incurred just because of time constraints, sort of willing technical debt. We're going to owe something for later. Are there other species that you see on our? What about uh, if I think, uh, yeah, uh, I think, um, I mean, lack of training can be one thing and it can be also, I mean, lack of knowledge of, of framework, uh, methods or, or even language semantics. So you, you do have some of that, uh, sort of lack of understanding of, of the tool itself. Uh, but architecture. Then, uh, Sure, absolutely, and uh, inappropriately chosen architecture. Yeah. Uh, that was maybe uh, the architecture choice was made too early before you really knew sort of the architectural uh, properties that you were looking for. So that can be a real problem. And then there is sort of uh, maybe underlying these understanding problems is is the more like general process problems. And we've been talking a little bit about that. Uh, I mean, the people who sort of uh, say you need to rush this feature because, and you say, uh, I really shouldn't because there's going to be technical debt. Uh, but it's still hard to, uh, as we talked about, to uh, 
to measure the impact. And you can, I think you can have a, a really pathological process that. Oh, will, sure. I mean, you teach yeah. managers to just say yes to all the technical debt in the world. Yes. I mean, and that, and that was something I think Alan was basically saying there was as long as it doesn't impact m- this manager's goals, he's going to demand all the technical debt he can get. If it means that yes. he delivers on the goals that matter to him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, there's just one thing uh, that I would like to say also is that uh, I don't think it's always the case that developers know sort of the fix to their, to their technical debt. Right. Either. Sure. Because we all we often look for sort of technical solutions to the technical debt itself, uh, but I don't think that's always going to help a lot. I mean, it's it's not. I don't think it's going to solve a lot of problems if you have accumulated a lot of technical debt that comes from a lack of understanding of of uh, of the real um, problem that you're trying to solve mm. over time. Uh, I mean, going from say a SQL database to a no SQL database or uh, going async or using microservices is not going to fix those problems. But often we see developers sort of looking for these uh, one-stop solutions sure. with a new framework or a new architecture that's sort of magically going to make all of this right. accumulated debt just go away. If only right? we'd written this project in X, then we wouldn't yes. have these well, problems. Well, you know, because, exactly. because that would be the easiest solution if such a miracle cure were out there. So yes. they tend to look for that first. Yeah. Well, I think the rewrite request has another element to it too, which is that while you're rewriting, everybody leaves you alone. Hmm. You know, non-trivial number of developers whose reaction to being harassed about these problems is just leave me alone. Hmm. And so a rewrite is a good way to get that. Yes. (laughs) And it also sort of pits you right into your comfort zone and the things that you know you're talented at, right? You became a developer. I coded my way into this problem. I'll code my way out of it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you sort of get away from all the human issues with like doing negotiation, secret compromises between different alternatives, and you just hack it, right? Making promises to people, keeping yes. them. Yes, <laughs> especially keeping them. Yeah. Yeah. Funny how that works. Well, you know, let's, how many times have we done this show on estimation? Just said it is really, really hard to estimate. And, and people, managers hold you to those estimates. You pulled this number out of your butt six months ago. Well, six months has gone by. Where's the magic? Yes. That's, that's kind of sad thing about estimation as the, is that it's often treated sort of as, as a bid. Uh, so you, this is what I bid to implement this feature. I can do this in six months or, or in six weeks or whatever. Yep. Well, and again, it's, it's almost, that's intentional technical debt there. I'm underbidding this so that we can get it going or because you demanded that it only take this long. Yes. That's the, that's the worst problem. I mean, when, when the bid is sort of controlled by the person asking you for a bid, that's kind of sad. Well, I mean, the feature set's always fixed, right? They're always coming at you yes. with the feature set. Now it's only, you know, time and quality and they just fix the time. So what's going to suffer? It's going to be the quality. Yes. Right. And then it's, it's very hard to be so called agile in that situation because you, yeah. there's really not much leeway at all. You got an albatross. <laughs> albatross. Albatross. So the other thing, I mean, the question here, and I find this over and over again in organizations is that technical debt is quickly forgotten too. Like yep. the, the fact that a, that a manager agreed that you should take that shortcut, those, so, I mean, those are months later. Nobody yep. remembers where yep. the debt was incurred or why it was incurred. I mean, how do you even reveal it? Yeah, it's, it's very hard because the code isn't really like jumping up uh, and saying, I got a lot of technical debt right here. You need right. to fix it. I mean, it's, uh, it's forgotten as soon as it's shipped and there are no apparent bugs at the moment, right? 
It passed the current test suite. It's been deployed. The customers aren't actually burning the building down close enough. Yes. Yep. And then that basically means, and now it's hard to change, right? Because it passed the tests. It's in the field. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's out there. I mean, the, the, how, instrumenting the development space well enough to show a deceleration. Yes. Right. I mean, there's so many ways to disguise the technical debt deceleration in the form of you asked for too many features in this latest build. So and so was on vacation. Like there's a hundred other reasons why we didn't make the next set of requirements. There, there are always a lot of reasons and it's hard to, uh, to judge whether or not they're accurate. It's uh, both for, for the developers and for the project managers. It's very hard to, to say whether or not the, the reasons that we list are really the real reasons, right? Well, and if I can't get a set of measurements around technical debt, it's really hard for me to hold a make a manager's bonus, you know, their quarterly requirements yeah. to be don't incur too much technical debt. Are you allowed to incur this much technical debt? Like, what's the measurement of technical debt? Right. Yes. You know, amount of hair torn out of developers' heads. <laughs> yeah, and that that's kind of the, a problem. I mean, uh, obviously, since it was invented by Ward Cunningham, the, the sort of the term technical debt is is beyond criticism. But um, it's 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 very hard uh, to say um, if you cannot really measure it, if you don't know how much you got, and you don't have a plan for handling it. It's I'm not really sure uh, that. Uh, Technical debt at that point is, is that useful as a metaphor? Because you really have a rampant debt. You don't know how much it is. And, and you're basically, uh, going towards, uh, sort of a technical bankruptcy, but you don't know when it's gonna. But gonna everybody, happen. everybody knows where it is and the, the, where the smelly spots are. Like I, I remember, here's a story for you. I remember working at Voyatra and Voyatra became Turtle Beach, but they, they wrote a sequencer, a MIDI sequencer in you know, for DOS, basically. It was in character mode. And it had this piano roll notation thing that was in character mode, and it was beautiful. And I remember when I worked there, I was, you know, just a junior programmer, so I never got to work on the code. But I do remember that they said, anytime they talked about the piano roll editor, they said, you know, and I would say, hey, why don't you just add this feature? Oh, God, no, no, we don't talk. We don't touch that code. That was written by some yeah. guy. He's no longer here. And nobody knows how that crap works, you know? Yes. Yeah, that's uh, that's where you have these comments of, say, like, here be dragons or whatever. Yeah. So there, there are always these, these bad points. But everybody approach. knew it. You know, everybody knew yeah. that you don't even you don't even suggest touching that code because you'll right. you'll you'll you screw it up. Yeah. Well, and when, so when a requirement climbs to the top for that code, it's like, we have to do this. Then the recommendation's got to be a rewrite. Yeah. Yes. Or you actually figure it out, you know? Yeah. That's, uh, that's a very typical high risk. I mean, uh, people tend to, I mean, it's, if, if it's an important piece of, of the code, and it usually is because, uh, uh, that's sort of where you, you make the most interesting things. Um, then it's, I mean, uh, the risk of getting something wrong, breaking 10 use cases, it's going to be huge, right? Yeah. Let me take this at another Hard. angle, too, because I think we keep applying technical debt is, is purely bad and should never happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all, you know, if only we had more time, if only we had, you know, to learn more or to code it right, then this would never happen. Is technical net a natural byproduct of the learning? 
that you're never going to have perfect understanding until you implement something. Like you got to get a V1 out there and get yep. yourself kicked to even sort of understand what the technical debt that you've incurred is so that your next rev can be better. I think that's very true. And I think also that it, uh, when the term was invented, it wasn't really intended as a purely negative thing. It's, it's something that you do consciously. Uh, right. As you say, maybe because uh, your understanding is is not perfect, or uh, you have a, a legitimate reason uh, to rush something, right? Because you do need to meet some deadline, right? Yeah. If we don't get the code out in the field, we're never yeah. going to know anyway. Yeah. You know, there's a point where this does become navel gazing, right? Where you're just spending so mm-hmm. much time trying to understand. <laughs> sure. You know, the the value is really low. It's cheaper, arguably, to get out there, ship some code incur yep. some debt and mm-hmm. learn than it yes. is to try and have perfect understanding before you start. Yeah. So the, the only very important thing there is, is the, the learning part, right? So you, you, yeah. need right. To, you need to do, do that learning. And I don't think we always do, unfortunately. I mean, well, sometimes the learning is only, well, that sucked. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I sort of want to bring this back to a call to action for the listeners. And we, we've said this before is that, those developers that can make their what should, what should we call it their pen, their their forte their their niche going into brownfield applications reading existing code understanding it fixing it debugging it whatever those developers are you know never want for work right <laughs> no that, that's yeah. that's definitely true they'll be in high demand yeah and and you want to be that developer to ask all these annoying questions about why did we do it this way? Uh, what is the purpose of this code? Because I don't, I think that's, that's sort of the only way to, to gain a reasonable uh, understanding of the code so that you might work with it. In, right. If you're in that. And I, and I, I, you I think you got to take that from a, ne- very, not a negative way. I'm a big believer in this idea that we made the best decisions we had with the information we had at the time. Yeah, sure. The people are always smart. And and I've definitely run into the guy who's just super critical of everybody else's code. This is is very true. Is his code really that good or is it just because he has hindsight? Hmm. Yes. And it's it's always the case that if I write some code that's really bad, uh, then it's because someone forced me to do something quickly. But if I come across some old code that's really bad, it's always because the person who wrote it was must have been stupid, right? (laughs) It must have been. I I think it's something. You talk about a call to action, Carl. The call to action is to presume the person who wrote this was smart. Right. Exactly. I think that's a very powerful concept. Don't, yeah, don't. Don't jump to the conclusion that the other person's an idiot. Maybe you're the idiot. (laughs) You know, or there was always context, right? So Uh, there's context when you're writing code, and there was context when the old code was written as well. You, yeah, you weren't there. You right. didn't know that the the investor was going to pull funding if we didn't ship on this day yeah. with yep. those features, right? Like the, those kinds of things happen. Yeah. Yep. And another thing is just to be suspect of any code, you know, just to, to you know, don't don't assume that it's all good and it all works. You actually have to no. get in there and test it and debug it and all of that. Absolutely. Where do you fall on the on the testing frameworks, Einar? Like, how big a deal is that when you're talking about technical debt? Well, it's it, it's certainly hard to do any anything with legacy code unless you have tests, right? So, right. I think it's very important to to sort of, I mean, you can use testing uh, both for regression and for uh, and for sort of 
exploring the behavior of the the old application, right? So you can mm-hmm. add some new tests, uh, basically as as an hypothesis of how the code is going to work, and then you run the test and you see if you're right or wrong, right? So you can gain some knowledge about the test that way. And there's this uh, interesting book. Oh, it's also, I mean, that book's probably also getting older now. It's uh, the legacy, working efficiently with legacy code by Michael Feathers, uh, which has yes, all yeah. great book. Yep. Yeah, that's a terrific book. And it, it has some advice on how you can work with tests as well, I think. Yeah, and, and absolutely a way to just think about that problem. And uh, I mean, Michael Feathers is one of those, I mean, uh, the uh, his original paper on ob- Object Mentor, that's like 2002. It's ancient, but it yes. doesn't mean it's wrong. I mean, uh, the things, uh, some things tend to stay the same in, in software development, I think. The, the problems, the core problems tend to stay the same. And I think also the core solutions tend to uh, stay the same, even though, I mean, individual technologies come and go rapidly, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, but in, And, and not it's... least, I mean, people stay the same. Yeah. People change yeah, I, I very, keep, I keep having this slowly. implication. There's, a, there's an implication in this conversation. It's always new people working on the code and so forth, and you have to learn it again. But I don't know about you, but a week after I've written something, it's out of my head. I'm reading oh, it new, too. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yes. So it's like we're all, you know, new to Brownfield applications each week we come back to work. Yeah. And you, you wonder why on earth you wrote that kind of code, right? What was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. And you lost the context as well. So. Oh yeah, yeah. The context the, the is definitely lost. Is that, uh, conclusion is that you must have been ignorant when you wrote it, but right? It probably well, were. And that's right? that's almost inevitably true, right? You always know oh, well, more later. Sure, but you'll also have forgotten things. So yeah, indeed. Well, because we're expected to know a lot of stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've, I've been really enjoying, and again, this is more DevOps practice stuff. We've been getting really good at building out our test suite so that they scale super fast in the cloud. And the mm-hmm. goal was to run the entire test suite in less than 15 minutes because oh, we found cool. the sooner you could get the error back to the developer, the less time it took for them to fix it. Yes. And it, and the, and the number was amazing. As soon as yep. it was, it took a couple of hours to run. It was three or four times to fix it. If you, you couldn't get the run, the test run done till the next day, you could hand that bug to anybody because it's, it doesn't make any difference yeah. now. It's out of his head, but right. that 15 minute window, he's yep. still getting back from coffee yes. after <laughs> doing his check in. The stuff's still in his head. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is testing tools are, uh, I think we still can do some improvements there. Uh, there are, uh, like in the .NET space, you have now, uh, FS check, which I think is a very interesting testing framework, uh, which will, uh, work with, uh, property based, based testing more than sort of individual, uh, example based testing. So you can sort of generate a large number of inputs and uh, verify that some property of your application holds that. I think that's uh, very interesting uh, with respect to correctness, at least. You're talking about FS check, the sort of yeah. random testing tool? Uh, mm, yeah, it's it's random in the sense that you will have some generator that will try. I mean, you can configure it, but it will try like 100 uh, different kinds of inputs and verify that some property that you define holds. I think it's right. a port uh, ultimately from Haskell, uh, the quick check tool. I think it's uh, another very interesting tool that people should have in their tool belt when trying to write tests. 
You know, and the funny thing about writing tests like this and so forth is it starts with you defining well what your code's supposed to do. Yes, right. Like, right. Yeah. Just the effort of doing that immediately mm-hmm. makes your code better and demands you understand your domain right, better. It makes you better. Yes. Yeah. So it, it forces you to define these properties and then you need to sort of, okay, what kind of property, uh, properties do I want in my software? Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Very powerful stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. So what's next for you Einar? what's next for me I, i'm not really sure uh, i mean i'm <laughs> i'm working on a big legacy system now but i'm trying to do these uh to have these discussions about what the what the domain is doing and what it's supposed to be doing mm-hmm. so I, I suppose it's going to be more of that great you are living in the technical debt world my friend yeah yeah uh, and yeah well that sounds fun Well, if you learn anything new, be sure to share it with us. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Einar, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's been great being on the show. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.